Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. The Theology in the Raw Exiles in Babylon Conference is right around the corner, March 31st through April 2nd. We're talking about race. We're talking about politics. We're talking about sexuality. We're talking about gender, hell, and many other hot topics with an amazing lineup of incredible speakers. You can get all the info on my website, PrestonSprinkle.com. Sign up sooner than later, attend in person or virtually. PrestonSprinkle.com for all the info. My guest, guests, plural, today are Sheila Ray Gregoire and her daughter, Rebecca Lindbach. Both of them are authors. Um, Sheila has written several books and Rebecca has written a couple books. The most recent is the forthcoming book that they wrote together with Joanna so Watsky, sorry, I didn't practice that pronunciation before <laughs> recording this. The book is called The Great Sex Rescue, which is based on a groundbreaking in-depth survey of 22,000 Christian women talking about sex, um, stereotypes about female sexuality, male sexuality, and the damage that the purity culture has done on future sex lives and marriages with uh, conservative or evangelical Christian women. This podcast was pretty provocative. So <laughs> this is, uh, let me just say, extra raw. We talk about all kinds of things um, in a way that uh, we, we are not, we didn't edit it. We just talked freely. We talk about sex. We talk about sexual anatomy. We get pretty graphic in what I think is a very honest and tasteful way. So just to be aware, um, if you're playing this podcast out loud with children present, you might want to turn it down a little bit or put in your iPods. So I am so excited for you to engage this super, super important and provocative conversation. So please welcome back, not back to the show, to the show for the first time, my friends, my new friends, Sheila and Rebecca. All right. Hey, friends. Uh, welcome back to another episode of Theology of Raw. Happy New Year again to you. I'm here with uh, Sheila Ray Gregoire. I hope I got that right. <laughs> Very good. And, and, and Rebecca uh, Lindenbach. Is that yes. right? I, I didn't double check yes. this. Okay, cool. I'm terrible that. pronunciation, so I'm really excited right now. We're off to a good start. I have had a lot of people tell me you need to have uh well sheila in particular on the show so i we share a lot of followers apparently so yes um, i'm not surprised yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so i think people are gonna be really excited about i i had already booked this podcast when i fished on twitter for like who do you want me to have on and um i had already booked it but then a lot of people were like oh you gotta have sheila and you'd love talking <laughs> to her so um, why don't you begin, both of you, just give a quick snapshot of what is the kind of work you guys do. And then I want to talk about this study you've done with 20,000 women, because I think that'll be mm -hmm. super eye-opening. Well, I've been, I've been, I started mommy blogging in 2008 when Rebecca was, she's Much my smaller. daughter. Yeah. What were you? You were young anyway. Um, so I was like, all marriage and parenting and homemaking and organizing and all that, all that stuff. Okay. I was in that space. And I found that the more I talked about sex, the more my traffic grew because people <laughs> like talking about sex. And so I started talking about that more and more researched it. 2012, um, the good girl's guide to great sex came out, which was a, a pretty big book at the time. And I just kept writing about sex. And when Rebecca graduated from university, yeah started working for me on the blog. We created a libido course, 31 days to great sex, all this stuff. We were pumping out 
great info on how to have great sex. And everyone still had the same problems. And it was, it was really frustrating. It was like we were hitting a wall. And then January, 2019, I was just, I had a migraine and I didn't want to work and I was procrastinating and I was on Twitter and people were (laughs) fighting over whether women needed respect or love. And they were referring to the book, Love and Respect with Emerson Egrich. Yeah. And I thought to myself, I have that book upstairs and I've never read it because I didn't read marriage books in case I plagiarized anything. So I had all these books, but I'd never read them. So I went and got it and I turned to the sex chapter and it was like a nuclear bomb went off in my living room. And I started FaceTiming Rebecca <laughs> and Joanna, another young woman who worked for me. And I'm like, he is said, he said, if your husband is typical, he has a need you don't have. Wow. So sex is all about the guy. He said, a husband needs physical release. That's what sex is about, is a husband's physical release. Well, women need emotional release. Mm-hmm. I don't even know what that is. Like, I think about I think about Sandra Bullock and the late Betty White. Yes. The late Betty White, oh, you know, yeah. in, in, in the proposal when they're when they're doing that scene in the woods. Like, that's what I think. Dancing <laughs> around the fire. <laughs> but... You know, and and he said all this awful stuff. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is like the best selling Christian marriage book. Maybe this is why people are still having trouble with sex, no matter how much good stuff we put out. And so um, we wrote a whole series on love and respect. We had hundreds upon hundreds of people commenting on how that book enabled abuse in their marriage. Um, we, We created a report sent it in to focus on the family because they publish it. They ignored us. And so we decided, well, they can ignore almost a thousand women, but can they ignore 20,000? And we just decided to do the largest study that's ever been done to academic standards and figure out if evangelical teachings are wrecking sex and marriage for women. Yeah. So tell, I want to know all about that study. So when did that, when did you do that study? Can you maybe describe the nature of it? And then I really want to get to the results of it. Yeah, of course. So we did the study in like the fall of 2019. We just, and we ended it winter of 2020, like January right before COVID. Oh, wow. So this COVID is recent. Goodness. Yeah. So okay. this is where, this is where me and our co-author Joanna Sawatsky did a lot of the work. I mm-hmm. uh, have some, have education in psychometrics and survey creation through oh, my, wow. um, through my undergraduate university degree, I really focused on that. And um, our co-author Joanna is an epidemiology um, like statistician. Like she knows mm-hmm. numbers <laughs> really, really well. And so she and I really developed this survey, and we um, measured three main things. First of all, we measured marital satisfaction, and we used just looking for how happy are in your marriage. <laughs> then we did sexual satisfaction. We asked questions about you know. Do you or so we're gonna we're gonna use a lot of words well, here that are very I know you're <laughs> this is theology in a raw. You and probably cannot as an eight year old in the next room. Okay, <laughs> like okay. So we ask questions like, do you orgasm? You know, are you able to get reliably aroused during sex? Like these kinds of questions. Um, and then finally, what we asked were we asked questions about whether or not they believed common evangelical teachings about sexuality and marriage that are found in these best-selling books. So we didn't ask them things like, have you read Love and Respect? But rather what we asked was, um, a wife is obligated to give her husband sex and he wants it, you know, do you agree? And those kinds of questions. So then what we could do was we could cross-reference and we could Mm -hmm. say, okay, of the people who believed X, did they have better or worse sex lives? Mm-hmm. than people who don't believe X. 
But on, on top of that, we actually measured it in two points of time. We measured it either in high school and today or during premarital counseling and today based on the message. Because we're assuming that, you know, high school girls are not being told a wife is obligated to give her husband sex. Right. We're assuming mm-hmm. she's going to be told like the modesty messages or the boys will push your sexual boundaries messages. So what that means is we could actually see if there was a causal relationship to a certain extent, if there was more likely to have a causal relationship. So if you believed something before you got married mm-hmm. and that made it more likely that your marriage is worse. Mm-hmm. It could be that hearing this belief, even in high school, primes you to have a worse marriage and worse sex life. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Golly. So, um, so yeah, what is the message that women are? So, cause you, you uh, sorry, I have several different questions coming together. <laughs> Welcome to my brain. Um, <laughs> uh, these are best selling books. So people are buying these books they're reading these books mm-hmm. and you're saying they are really not accurate or, or how would you describe the book? Should it just playing into stereotypes? Are they capturing a glimpse of truth, but not, or yeah. How would you describe? I would, some of these I would say that all of them say things that sound just right enough that you miss the poison in them. Mm. So mm-hmm. for instance, we know multiple studies have shown that the majority of marriages between the man and a woman, the man will have the higher sex drive, the sure. majority. Okay. We know that from a lot of different studies. So what these books will do is they'll then talk about how sex is for men and men need sex in a way that women can never understand. Mm -hmm. You know, they talk about how, you know, this is something where women, it's your duty to provide this because you are the only way that he can. And so if you don't, then you are leaving him out like he's starving in a desert with no water and no food. And this is the most cruel thing you could do to someone. You can never understand it because you don't want sex as much as he does. And so what they do is they take that little bit where it's like men tend to have a higher libido than women and they forget all the nuance, which is a lot of women have higher libidos than men. And also simply having a felt need for sex does not mean that you don't understand each other's experience. And there's, there's all the nuance Mm -hmm. that they completely miss. And what that means is over time again and again and again, these best-selling books have completely erased women's experience Mm -hmm. at the expense of in essence, men's desire for ejaculation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, go, you know, so, right. so, yeah, so what we did yeah. essentially was we did this huge survey. Our research project was really, it was, there were four elements to it. So we did the huge survey mm-hmm. and it was like a minimum 130 questions. Like it took about half an hour of a woman's life and we had 20,000 people answer it. So if you were one of those 20,000, thank you very much. <laughs> thank um, you. Then we did a huge literature review. So we looked at all the peer-reviewed literature in academia. About, we actually did the literature review. I do stickler. We did yes, the literature did review first, first so that we knew what to ask. Okay. Um, but to find out what does help women's sexual and marital satisfaction. And okay. then from that, we created a rubric of 12 markers of healthy sexuality. So okay. these 12 things are, are what are important. And then we read the 10 best-selling marriage books and, and six iconic sex books to see what they said. <laughs> and what we found is that over and over again, they, they had very harmful messages. Yeah, they failed. There were some that passed, so it was possible to pass. Okay. Yeah, Gift of Sex by Cliff and Joyce Penner scored 47 out of 48 yep. on our rubric. So amazing book. Boundaries in Marriage scored 42 out of 48. Really good book. Highly recommend. Love and Respect literally scored zero. Wow. So when you say scored, you're measuring that against what 20,000 women have Said? Against is- both the results from our own survey, okay. but also um, the results of other peer-reviewed research. Ah, mm-hmm. Okay. What was the first um, one you mentioned? They got a 47 out of 48? The, the Gift, Gift of Sex by Cliff and Joyce Penner. 
I've heard I've heard of it, but I've not, yeah. yeah I, I'm not. I don't. Uh, contrary to what people may think, I don't sit around reading sex books. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm familiar with Love and Respect. I think I read parts of it way long, like when it first came out. Um, mm-hmm. th- what What are some what are some dangerous messages? What are some of the main threads you see that through the ones that are scoring low? What are some of the things, the, the main themes that you see come up a, again and again? Well, we identified four really harmful teachings. And in Lord of the Rings terminology, I like to say like there's one ring that rules them all, like one, one teaching that's over everything. And it would be that idea that if your husband is typical, he has a need you don't have that Emerson Egrich said that sex is primarily for men. So all of the teachings really flow from that, that sex is a man's need, not a woman's need. Um, and then we had four specific things that we found were particularly harmful. There were other ones, but these are the four main ones we talk about in our book. Um, and things like uh, all men struggle with lust. It's every man's battle. Even if you don't believe it, even if a girl is merely taught that in youth group, Hmm. okay, so she's a teenager and she is taught that all men struggle with lust, it's going to lower her libido when she gets married. It's going to cause her to trust her husband less, even if he doesn't watch porn, even if he doesn't show any signs of lusting, she's going to trust him less. (laughs) Um, It's going to make her marital satisfaction go down. You know, it's it's a toxic message, even if she never believes it. If she grows up in a community that is always teaching this, that is making sex sound degrading, it's right. going to really affect her. Wow. Yeah. That, so so, how would you communicate that? Like, what, what's the better message with regard to lust? Because a lot of men it's do actually, struggle, right? Or a lot yeah. of just people struggle with lust, I would say. Exactly. Men probably on average more. Exactly. Okay. But, and, and this whole idea of reframing is actually one of the big things that we do in our book is this idea that it's not just about calling out what's bad. It's also about how do we then move forward? How do okay. we find the healthy other way? And yeah, exactly. So for this whole idea of all men struggle with lust, really what we just have to start telling people is lust is a sin that a lot of people struggle with. Mm-hmm. You know, sure. Statistically speaking, men might struggle with it more than women, but that doesn't mean that women don't. And this is not a battle that is going to be completely unwinnable because we know that Christ and the Holy Mm -hmm. Spirit can work through us to help us overcome all sin. Mm -hmm. And so this is... Yeah, but also the way that you defeat lust is by... Oh, are you going to go there? Okay, I just totally preempted you. That's fine. (laughs) The way you defeat lust is by treating other people as whole people made in the image of God. Yes. Hmm. It's not by bouncing your eyes. Yeah. The way that Steve Arterburn talks about in Every Man's Battle. It's okay. by seeing people as whole people made in the image of God. Yeah, it's not by seeing women as threats, yeah. but rather as learning to see women as sisters, as as like bearers of God's image. Um, yeah. That mentality is different. So how does this show up later in life then? You said, I mean, when they start hearing these messages as a teenager, early 20-something, then they get married, then 15 years into marriage, got a couple of kids, like what what – how is this? Me- how are you seeing this message pop its rear its head up later on in in marriage? Mm-hmm. Well, for this particular one, I think that this really what it does is it poisons the water for the the woman. I think against her husband, right? Mm-hmm. So think about it. If you're a 15 year old in youth group and you're hearing every single boy that you know is constantly going to be struggling if you wear spaghetti strap tank tops, um, mm-hmm. and not only the boys but the elders and the pastors and your friends' dads, um, because that is what 
girls are told, specifically in a lot of Shanti Feldon's work. Um, she she writes to girls and says that, you know, it's not just the boys your age, but it's also your your friends' dads who are going to be looking at you and have this automatic hmm. response that, you know, <laughs> is incredibly creepy. Um, and I think that what happens <laughs> is if you're growing up in this culture and then you meet a man who you think seems really great, you're still going to believe in the back of your mind, but he's still just like all the others because mm. all men are like this. So mm -hmm. no matter what he does, you can never fully trust him because even if he's never given you a chance to, sorry, if, even if he's never given you a reason to not trust him, mm -hmm. you've been told from like the moment that you hit puberty when 11-year-olds are told they have to start covering up or else they're going to start inciting lust in mm. you know, <laughs> the men in the pews. Uh, you're told this from such a young age that you almost kind of believe, well, maybe he's just never given me a reason to not trust him because I've still had sex, because I've still made sure that his cup is full, as they often say. Um, you know, they and so it becomes this almost self-fulfilling prophecy because you keep having sex to make sure that he doesn't watch porn or lust or struggle. And so he doesn't watch porn or lust or struggle. And so you keep having sex. And then down the line, you realize that your entire marriage has been, you know, you and maybe it's only a small seed, but it's a small seed of fear and distrust that's always been there that didn't need to be. Wow. But, but I think it even goes further than that. Like, okay, what is sex? Yeah. Because that's that's <laughs> part of the problem. Yeah. Like, if I were to if I were to ask you, Preston, like, did you have sex last night? Which I'm Don't not going to do. But, <laughs> that's, that's but but if I were to. What everyone thinks I'm asking is like, did you put your penis into her vagina, move around until you climaxed? Like that's, that's how we're defining it. But if that's our definition, she could be lying there making a grocery list in her head, right? She could be lying there in emotional turmoil, or she could even be in physical pain and it would still count mm. as having sex. And that is part of the problem because the Bible does not define sex as merely intercourse, but our church culture does. Mm -hmm. And when we tell women you need to have sex, or when we tell couples sex is an important part of marriage, and what we mean is intercourse, then her experience is secondary. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really matter. Like the main thing is that he gets to ejaculate. How would you define how would you define sex? And and yeah. What's a healthier <laughs> So I think there's three big things in our book in, in the great sex rescue. We break it down into, I think seven, but I'm going to, I'm not going to do seven because it's too hard to remember. There's three <laughs> that you can remember that kind of encapsulate everything. But Genesis four, verse one, there's this weird verse. Adam knew his wife, Eve, and they conceived a son. And it's easy to read that and laugh and think God's embarrassed of using the real word. But the root word there for to know is the same root in the Psalms. When David says, search me and know me, Oh God. You know, and God is telling us that sex is a deeply intimate experience. It's a longing to be connected. And we see that in the way that God uses sexual imagery to talk about his relationship with us. Like it isn't, it isn't merely a physical act. It's a deeply intimate knowing of two people. Um, in Song of Solomon, we know it's awfully pleasurable for both. Mm -hmm. The woman in Song of Solomon gets to talk more than the guy. She's mm -hmm. having a really good time. So, you know, it's intimate, it's pleasurable for both. And in 1 Corinthians 7, we know it's completely mutual. Everything that she gets, he gets and vice versa. So it's this intimate, pleasurable, mutual experience. That's good. Yeah. That's what God intended. And we have reduced it 
to his ejaculation. And mm. it's created, um, here's, here's just one stat that a lot of people don't know. Evangelical women have more than twice the rate of sexual pain disorders as the general population. Why is that? Why is that? That's so we. That's one of our big research questions, and we we figured it out. And so we're actually presenting at the American Physical Therapy Conference next month to with some of our findings. But um, it it flows down from the what we call the obligation sex message. That's the message that we found was most correlated with vaginismus. And everyone needs to know the word vaginismus. Okay, Vag, everyone say it. Vaginismus. <laughs> we all know erectile dysfunction, right? Like right. you watch. Yeah. Everyone knows what that is. Right. Vaginismus is way more common in couples under the age of 40. We found an incidence rate of about 22.6% um, and 7% to the point where penetration is impossible. Yeah. And it's where the muscles in the vaginal wall contract or get really tight. And so sex either hurts or is impossible. Mm-hmm. And the obligation sex message is highly correlated with this. And the obligation sex message says you are obligated to give your husband sex when he wants it. And if a woman believes that, her chance of experiencing pain increases to almost the same statistical effect as if she had been abused. Because both abuse and the obligation sex message tell a woman, you don't matter. He has the right to use you. And our bodies interpret that as trauma. Well, if, I mean, and I didn't, it's almost eight o'clock in the morning here where I'm at. I didn't wake up thinking I'd talk about the muscles of vaginal walls, but this is actually (laughs) important. So... Because that sounds to me like that's psychological, like that's that's in the brain. That's the brain sending a message to your vagina and close, like the the muscles are related to some sort of psychological response, right? Is that is that what you're getting at? Or it's it's both and okay, mm-hmm. yeah. There's there's a, a psych, like obviously you know believing something is a psycholo- is a psychological. Um, experience, but then as you have the physical response, then the physical response can start happening just because automatically or you're mm-hmm. anticip- because your uh, body learns this is not a safe thing. My body must you know close up. So it's it's um, both a psychological and a physical thing, which is why, frankly, a lot of times just counseling doesn't work. You need okay. to also get like physiotherapy from a pelvic physiotherapist to help you retrain how your muscles themselves work, how mm-hmm. to you know learn how to use those muscles again in a way that doesn't cause pain, in a way that you can help relax them and and mm-hmm. relearn how to. Even, even if it's sort of subconscious, it still seems like the roots of it are in a, some sort of message they've heard. Like if somebody never heard some sort of kind of message like that, it sounds like yeah. a large number of women. Well, that's what your study showed, right? That even that's, 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 what that's, that's what our study showed is that it was because they were exposed to these teachings and believed them. Yeah, the women who who reported like, I only have sex because I have to, like hmm. their their pain rates were just ridiculously high. And can you imagine as well taking that into consideration? These are women who are experiencing pain to such an extent that sex is, is it's not even just like, ah, it hurt for a little bit and then we were okay. No, this is pain to the extent that sex is not pleasurable. Sex is yeah. actively a bad experience. And they're still having sex because they feel they have to. Because they've been told their whole life that you, you're not allowed to deprive him. Yeah. And anything that he feels like... It, it, you just would never be able to understand the extent of it. And so Mm -hmm. that means that no matter what you're going through, what he's going through by not having sex is worse. Yep. Exactly. Wow. 
and you will, he will, he will not feel loved. It will be impossible. Like Emerson Egrich says, it will be impossible for him to feel respected or loved if you don't have sex with him. And so you're not allowed to deprive him yeah. unless you're taking time away for prayer. Yeah. And I guess, and the question that we're really trying to ask is at, at what point do we get to say that women matter too? Mm-hmm. We're not Mm -hmm. saying that women should matter more than men. What we're just saying is that if you are a good Christian man, Mm -hmm. why isn't it expected that your wife being uncomfortable or in pain or psychologically troubled or anything like that, why wouldn't that be expected to make Mm -hmm. you not want to have sex right now? Do you you think that the couples are even aware of, like, do they, have, I don't know if you found in your research, but do they talk about it? Is she like, I, this hurts. I don't want to do this. And he's like, oh, let's, why is that? And like, or is it just kind of un, just hush, hush? Like she just kind of doesn't want to talk there's about it. There's both. Or, both, yeah. I think there's both. We talked to a lot of, I talked to a lot of women in focus groups that I ran uh, to try to tease out some more of these more complicated and nuanced relationships. And I talked to a lot of women whose husbands knew that they they kind of didn't really have a high libido and didn't really like sex, but they hadn't ever actually really talked about like the fact that it hurt or they felt mm-hmm. dirty or gross about sex or they felt mm-hmm. like they were being used or they felt emotionally distant after sex. They never talked about it. And then when they did talk about it, their husbands were like, well, gosh, I don't believe any of that stuff. I don't believe you have mm-hmm. to have sex with me. I want you to want to have sex with me. And if you don't, mm-hmm. then I'm happy not having sex for a while while we sort this out. You know, these are husbands who are like, I'm not just four minutes away from like ruining our entire marriage with an affair if you don't give me sex right now. Like there's all these husbands who are thinking, I had no idea what my wife was being taught. So there's that half of it. And we actually found in our focus groups that a lot of times those husbands are actually the best healing forces in their wives' lives because they then proved their wife, what you've been taught is not true. Mm-hmm. What you have been taught that I need mm-hmm. and I think is not true and I'm going to prove it to you. So those guys, we were like, good job. We love you. Um, and then there's the other side where the men have also heard this and they've also internalized it. Mm-hmm. And they have created an expectation on their wives because of what the church has told them that has led to incredible sexual entitlement. Mm-hmm. Um, so that their wife literally is there in pain and he says, it's okay. I'll make it fast. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. What, what are some, I'm curious, what are some g- general, uh, uh, differences between, uh, men and women's sec- sexuality, libido drive. Like have you, cause I mean, they're, they're, in a, just to acknowledge up front that some of these general differences have been made absolute, maybe blown out of proportion, mm-hmm. and yet there are general differences, right, between <laughs> yes. male and female sexuality. Can, can you, in, in your work and research and discussions, like how would you how would you describe in a more healthy way different male female sexualities per se? Or? The first thing that I would say is the first thing we have to look at is the orgasm gap. Okay. Yeah. So the biggest difference in men and women's sexuality in general is that men orgasm really easily. Yeah. And women do not. Um, mm-hmm. Our research of of um, primarily evangelical women found that forty seven percent of women reliably orgasm, whereas um, other studies have found um, that over ninety five percent of men. Mm-hmm. Well, our study, our, our, our follow-up survey of men, it's not in the Great Sex Rescue, yes. but it's it's in our new book coming out in March, The Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex, found that 95% of evangelical men yeah. orgasm almost always or always. Yep. And, yeah. and other studies of non-religious women have found around 63% of women mm-hmm. orgasm reliably. So, mm-hmm. um, and we do know that religion 
tends to actually reduce orgasm rate for women because of these toxic messages. So that makes sense that our numbers will be slightly, slightly lower. So we need to, first of all, understand that there's something about how our bodies and our minds work. That means that in essence, sex is going to be easier for men than it is for women. That's just a reality that I, Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, couples should go into their -hmm. relationship knowing that she's not broken. If what works for him doesn't work for her. Mm -hmm. Um, now mm-hmm. the other the other difference as well is that for women a lot of the things that can quote unquote go wrong with sex are incredibly big deals. <laughs> like I will be honest here, okay? Like sexual pain is a really really difficult thing to experience. Mm-hmm. Um it's really bad. And we I talk about this in the book I experienced incredibly bad sexual pain postpartum as a result of an incredibly bad third degree almost fourth degree tear. Yep. Um and and I, I had primary vaginismus yeah, when so we first like, got married. Like we all we've we've expe- we've we're all preaching from experience. <laughs> um, but it's one of those things where, you know, also if a woman is feeling like she's not safe having sex or anything mm-hmm. like that, uh, she also is the one who could get pregnant if something happened. Mm-hmm. And that alone is is a really big vulnerability that that men simply do not have. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that that's also a really important thing to recognize. And I think that that comes back to this whole call to love as Christ loved the church Mm -hmm. and love as you love your own body is take those experiences and, and, and really understand Mm -hmm. them and don't make her act like your body. You need to consider hers. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's, that's one thing. The other thing is that we do tend to see that men have a higher libido than women, Mm -hmm. but Um, it's not, it's not that different. No. Um, really? there's a lot of, yeah. So in, in, um, oh gosh. And now I can't remember our exact number. I know. Okay. So 58% of men have Thank the you. higher libido than their wives in our study, yeah. in our study, 19% of women have the higher libido. And then in the other 23%, it's roughly equal. Yeah. Like they, so it's wow. not like it's always the guy who wants it more. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And other okay. studies have found that it's even more, um, swayed towards women having the higher libido, especially Mm -hmm. in, in, um, secular, um, groups as well. So, So, yeah, so it really does seem like a lot of our evangelical teachings are artificially lowering women's libidos. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so we do see this difference, but again, our question is, is this a difference of gender or is this a difference of culture? Mm-hmm. Right. Because there are other cultures that kind of saw women as the sexual ones and men were the holy ones who were trying to keep mm-hmm. back from these over-sexualized women who were trying to get at them. Right. Um, and so like I do think there's there's a level where we have to question, is this something that, we, that we're seeing because it's a God-designed aspect mm-hmm. of sexuality or our experience? Or is mm-hmm. it because we happen to live in a culture that, frankly, tells women that sex is kind of painful and bad and threatening. And mm. it's something you just kind of have to do to make sure your man doesn't leave. Yeah. Like maybe, maybe that might be part of it. Or the like na- you said, 20 yeah. to 30% stat where the it's na- like how, uh, yeah. How surprising is it if we have such a high rate of sexual abuse or, or right. like sexual assault that women are experiencing. And then mm-hmm. we're all of a sudden surprised they don't like sex as much as their husbands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The nature nurture things really hard to unravel. You know, are yeah. we, are we, are we, nurtured into believing these things and therefore we start embodying messages from a very early age or is it strictly just biological and i you know i i try to read stuff on both sides there's some extreme views on this where it's like 
men and women are biologically basically exactly the same. You know, everything's mm-hmm. culture nurturing us and other others like a Steven Pinker mm-hmm. or others was like, no, like we were kind of pre-programmed in our biology to have a certain personality and that will never change. You know, it, it, I, I do. I've read several books on like just the role of testosterone in particular. It does seem that high levels of testosterone um, aren't neutral. Like that does do something. And I've, it's, there's two cases where this is especially interesting. One, um, when you have in like an open up this door, but when you have, um, uh, trans men, so, so biological female transitioning to male and they take high levels levels of testosterone and just, it's more, it's a little anecdotal. I don't know if there's data on this, but a lot of them experience just, just like skyrocketing, you know, sex drive where it's like, oh my gosh, like mm-hmm. <laughs> I just want to have mm-hmm. sex like all the time. You know, it's like, well, welcome to high tea, you know, um, and <laughs> other uh, Andrew Sullivan, he's a, uh, a journalist, mm-hmm. gay journalist, and he's had, he has HIV and he, I remember listening to podcasts and he talked about as some, I don't even know the science behind this, but like he had to take testosterone as some sort of like therapeutic, whatever to whatever. And he said, and <laughs> you know, his words, not mine. It was hilarious. He's like, I, so I started taking testosterone and like, he's, he says, you know, small animals were running away from me. Like I, I was just, I was so <laughs> off the chart horny, you know? So I, yeah. I do think, so here, here's where I think, I think, when we talk about libido, and here, here's where I'm going to wander into an in ignorant area in my, I'm just, this is more me mm-hmm. asking questions. Like, when we even talk about libido or sex drive, are we thinking too limited? Because just because somebody with high levels of testosterone just wants to have, like, intercourse, you know, um, that's not, somebody else could have, not have that but still have a high libido, maybe they have a more holistic view of sex where mm-hmm. sex is the Genesis two, four or four, four, one thing, you know, like I have mm-hmm. a strong desire to know and be known where intercourse may be part of that, but it can't be reduced to just, I just want to have intercourse, you know? Yeah. Is that, and yeah. I, I, if I play into some of these old school stereotypes, just slap me on the head or something like, but could, is there something just different about female sexuality in general that is more holistic, complex, one might even say beautiful and <laughs> more humane? Or, Well, I think that the it comes back to – first of all, we do know that women's sexuality and women's sex drive is more easily affected by psychological state, by relational okay. um, closeness, mm-hmm. those kinds of things, so, which makes total sense. Again, right. like I said, women are the ones who get pregnant. If you are having sex sure. with a man as a woman, you could become pregnant. That is a lot of resources that your body will need. That is incredibly stressful. You will have a baby to take care of. And so it makes sense that our sex drives are much more, in essence, trigger happy to turn off. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause it's like yeah. anything goes bad and it's like, Oh, don't have sex with that person. They could get you pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> and they're not safe. So they're not yeah. safe. Whereas for men, again, like it's like, if you have sex and you get someone pregnant, I mean, this is going to sound bad, but you can just dip, right? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. you, you don't have the physical sure. um, yeah. vulnerability in the same way. And so there is a level there, but that does not mean that women's sexuality, I think this is where we where we get into a problem with how we talk about sex, where the idea that women's sexuality can turn off very quickly, therefore we assume that it also can't turn on very intensely. Mm-hmm. So the question is not whether or not, you know, men want sex more than women or any of these kinds of questions. It's about how do we find a, um, 
a situation where women's sexuality is allowed to flourish so that she feels safe, so that mm-hmm. she knows it's going to be pleasurable, so that her body, you know, can just enjoy it without having to worry. Um, because frankly, I mean, if we're looking at how women and men are different, the one of the big things that I find very ironic that we never talk about in all these uh, gender discussions in the church is that women can have multiple orgasms and yeah. men can't. Yeah. So right. who is when you look at how our bodies are made? Yeah. Who is the more are the sexual? Ones, women are the ones with the body part that is literally only for sexual pleasure, right. um, mm-hmm. which is the clitoris for anyone who doesn't know that. Um, you know, women are the ones who can have multiple orgasms that can last upwards of an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, women an are hour? the ones. Yes. And women. Well, they haven't found an end point. They, no, no one's, they just stopped. T- they, they just, just stopped, stopped timing at an hour. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's the thing. there is no scientific reason why a woman couldn't just have a continuous orgasm for hours at a time. Yeah. Like over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so this is what I mean. Like there is a but there's a biological precedent to actually believe that women have a higher uh, uh, a higher capacity for sexual experience than men do mm-hmm. and we don't have a refractory period, we don't have a refractory like period. all that sort of thing yeah. and so this this is the kind of thing where it's like is it that you know men just are are hornier than women mm-hmm. or is it that women have been you know put in a situation where they're not safe and so they're not able to experience mm. the fullness of the sexuality that God designed for yeah. them. And that's really what we're saying mm-hmm. is that a lot of the reason that women feel unsafe isn't necessarily because of their husbands. Mm-hmm. It's because of these toxic messages that they've been they've been filled with their whole lives in church, which makes sex sound really ugly. Mm. Like every man's battle literally said, when your husband quits porn cold turkey, be like a merciful vial of methadone for him. Oh my gosh. Like, you so, know, he really wants the good stuff, but he'll put up with you. And so. then like, <laughs> Sheet music, Kevin Lehman said that your period is a difficult time for your husband. And so your during husband? your Yes. No. <laughs> yes. And so during Poor your man. Period, we have it so hard, I'm telling you. Yeah. Oh, those periods. Yes. Just- yes, you need to you should give him oral sex or a hand job to get him through that difficult time. And then mm-hmm. later on he says, if you're not feeling your best or if you're postpartum, you can give him a hand job or if you have a heavy period. So, um, and then Gary Thomas in his recent book, Married Sex, told women that husbands really like it when you give hand jobs postpartum because of how aroused you get. Like there's no, women do not get aroused giving hand jobs when they're postpartum. I don't like, I, it sounds like some fantasy. Okay, now, again, some women, some women do. We know that some women yes, have hormones okay. are going, they're like, I want to get freaky and but, they go and they we, have fun. Good yes, for you. Good for, awesome you. for you. Yes. But the majority of women when they're postpartum do not want to be told this is a difficult time for your husband. So make sure that you're also panting and moaning and making yeah. it really hot for him because you just pushed a baby out two weeks ago. Yeah. And can't have sex yet medically. Are there any books, Christian books, that talk about how like men can serve women so that she <laughs> like where, hey, okay, you may not want to have sex, but she's super horny. Here's what you can do to like basically flip the script. Is there anybody that also married sex? They do mention like, of course a husband should also, you know, like help his wife out when he's not particularly feeling it. But the difference is this is a false equivalency. 
mm-hmm. saying I'm just not really feeling into it is not the same thing mm-hmm. as I literally had a C-section eight days ago. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like feeling I'm not into it is not the same thing as I am currently experiencing cramps so bad that like I have to curl my toes to get through them because of my period. Like yeah. I'm not feeling like I want to have sex, but sure, I'll, I'll you know, mm-hmm. make you feel good is not the same thing as saying, you know, I've been up with the baby every single night breastfeeding. I have bleeding nipples and <laughs> I have hormones postpartum that are raging. And by the way, I just spent nine months like depleting all of my body's stores to grow a human being. And I just went through the most traumatic thing that my body's going to do in its entire life. But yeah, it's been six days. So I guess you need a handy. Can it's you, not the can same you tell that her baby is two months old right now? <laughs> <laughs> The difference is, the difference is, the advice that's given to men can also be given to women. You know, sometimes you'd rather just watch Netflix or call a friend and chat or play video games. But you know what? Prioritize your relationship and say, this is going to be great for both of us and go have some sex. That can be said to both men and women. The problem is that the advice that's given to women can never be said to men because they, like, it simply is not a part of the life cycle for men to experience physical recovery the way that it is for women Mm -hmm. because there are women who every single month are going through horrific experiences Mm -hmm. on their periods Mm -hmm. there are women who are having a child every 18 months for like seven years of their life Mm -hmm. and that means that that is approximately 10 months or or Preston have you ever heard of the 72 hour rule no every woman has okay pretty much it's in evangelical. Every, yeah, it's in every man's battle. It's in power of a praying wife. It's in sheet music. Um, I've heard it at women's conferences that men need sex every seventy-two hours. Mm-hmm. And many, and we tried to figure out what the what where this rule came from, mm-hmm. and because all of these books had it, and they were all footnoting each other. And I finally found it. We looked in the medical literature. Like, yeah. is there something mm-hmm. magical about hour seventy-three? where men suddenly like just explode or something if they don't get sex. Because that is what we're in essence told. It's told they'll have extreme physical discomfort. They won't be able, they'll have really big issues with mood. And with lust. And with lust. Lust will, will, will mm-hmm. pop up after 72 hours because men get so uncomfortable. Nothing in the medical literature about this. We finally traced it back to a book that James Dobson wrote in 1977. Really? Yes, yeah, he that just says, says it. that men need sex every time too. And but this has become gospel, and it is it is told women like like um Kevin Lehman in Sheet Music says, "Don't get married unless you're willing to have sex every 48 to 72 hours for the rest of your life." And he includes periods and the postpartum oh period God. in that. That's the issue. <laughs> it's like you know. So well, the issue the issue is Kevin Lehman in that section says that there are times you might want to abstain, such as the postpartum. But then in the same book, he gives advice for women postpartum to give hand jobs. So yeah. which is it? Is she allowed to take any time off? Or is it that if you're not as good of a wife, you can take time off. But if you're really wanting to serve God and be a good Christian woman, you'll make sure that you get you give him a handy when and, you're And it's specifically because he can't last your whole period without watching porn. Yeah. Unless you're topping him up. But, so I so a lot of this sounds like just hardcore late 80s, early 90s purity culture stuff that's been yeah. So I I don't know. I live in a different brand of evangelicalism so part of me is like oh yeah like 20 years ago we used to do all this purity stuff is this still very alive and well like married sex was written october 2021 and that's that's by gary thomas okay oh wow okay and that and and i will say married sex um 
you know, I think, I think they tried to make it a lot more balanced. Yeah. Um, but it's one of those things where the core messages are all still there. You know, they praise women for sending nude photos to their husbands. So, um, saying that it neurologically rewires his brain to get used to looking at his wife instead of pornographic images, Mm. which is just complete bunk. Yeah. It tells, Um, it tells women you should see giving sex to your husband in a similar way to how a parent sees feeding their newborn child in the middle of the night. Yeah. How a mom breastfeeds the newborn cause they need it. And so, you know, yeah, it's going to feel like a sacrifice and an obligation, but you love your baby. So why can't you service your husband? Um, they yeah. have that kind of logic all through it. And it's, it's these kinds of things where again, you know, women are told, give him hand jobs when you're postpartum or on your period. He's why, here's why he likes it so much. And then men are told, and maybe if you're not in the mood sometimes when she is, you know, like, throw her one. It's not the same thing. Um, mm-hmm. Sheet music is an older book. Well, but it's I think it's 2008. 10. Yeah, it's not that old. Yeah. When you consider the fact that, you know, this is affecting people who've been married for like maybe 15 years. They were married back in, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. 2006 or mm-hmm. so. And so these these kinds of books, they're still being um, touted today as the, mm-hmm. as the experts. I mean, love and respect is still one of the best selling marriage books out there. And it's still the, the most used marriage study in North American churches. Yeah. And it's, and, and I mean, the book literally has an example of a woman talking to her daughter who doesn't enjoy sex, with their husband, and who's really struggling. And the mom says to her daughter, why would you deprive him of something that takes such a short amount of time and makes him so happy? Hmm. And Eggrich includes multiple O's. Like so happy. happy. (laughs) And and I will say that this is the entire problem. Because if sex is taking such a short amount of time, that also might point to why she doesn't like it. (laughs) I think we said in the book that we really can't understand why anyone expecting sex to feel good for a woman would emphasize its brevity above all else. Mm -hmm. Like I... I, (laughs) And this is the mentality where it's like, why would you deprive him of something that makes him so happy? And the question isn't, hey, why hasn't he made this good for you? The question isn't, why, how can Mm -hmm. we make this so that both of you can really enjoy the gifts that God has given you? Instead, it's, oh, this selfish woman, Mm -hmm. this selfish woman who is once again making this poor man not get the sex that he so deserves. And it's, it's this whole mentality that, you know, Women really can't enjoy sex. Women just aren't really sexual. Some women will tell you that they like sex, and that's fine. But we all know that women don't really like sex as much as men. And mm-hmm. so we just have to put up with it and make sure that he gets enough so he doesn't look at porn or yeah. look at other women. And yeah. it's just it's such a it's such a distressingly depressing view of men. It's a distressingly yeah. depressing view of sex, of marriage. And no wonder we're seeing so many people, you know, wake up 15, 20 years into marriage and realize what the heck have I done with my life? Mm. Yeah. Cause we're giving them a terrible, terrible playbook. And, and it's, it's not just happening in the 1990s and 2000s. Right. Again, like this same thing, the same messages, they might be given with a lot more kind of PC language now, but they're exactly. still being given today. Yeah, and it's still the main issue in that we that we read about over and over again in evangelicalism, or even when you listen to sermons about sex, it's you need to make this priority. You need to have more sex, as if the main problem is frequency. Yeah. Mm. So frequency is the problem we need to solve. What we found is that in marriages where she orgasms frequently, she feels emotionally close to him during sex. Mm-hmm. They have high marital satisfaction. There's no sexual dysfunction and there's no porn use. 
frequency takes care of itself. Hmm. Like if sex is good for her and she feels connected, frequency is not an issue. So if frequency is an issue, there's something else going on. Hmm. And it's probably the orgasm cap, but it's, it's, or any number of things. Yeah. And yet instead of talking about those number of things, we're simply telling women you need to have more sex. What I, I think, hmm. What I've said is what I would love to see as a big change is that frequency is is less the measure of a good sex life. Because by the way, I do want to say this. Other studies and secular studies as well have found that frequency is actually not a predictor of marital or sexual satisfaction. Mm-hmm. It's not a good predictor. Um, mm-hmm. There's other predictors that actually um, show whether or not the marriage is, is good that are much more reliable than f- sexual frequency. Um, but rather sexual frequency is more like the canary in the coal mine. Mm-hmm. You know, so if we're, if, if, if she's only wanting to have sex once every three months, if that, let's have a conversation about what went wrong. You know, maybe life is untenable. Maybe she's overstressed because he's just totally disconnected. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe she's never had an orgasm because sex has never taken more than 45 seconds. You know, mm-hmm. like there's there's a lot of there's a lot of things we have to ask about first. And um I think that if we started seeing frequency and even even incredibly low libidos as a canary in the coal mine versus the problem or the goal, we'd actually get back to that kind of three-factored approach to sexuality where we focus on the mutual, intimate, and pleasurable experiences that mm-hmm. God has designed into sex. And when something goes off, we can go back to those three things, say, okay, which of these have we yeah. are missing? Which of these are missing? In terms of libido, like, is it, and again, I'm, I'm drawing on, I don't know if this is a stereotype or whatever, but like that, that, um, yeah. How, how does male and female libido change over time? Like I I've heard like men's libido drops off earlier than women and women. Does it actually kind of go up? There's a lot of questions about that. And there's a lot of questions about why Mm -hmm. the one thing that I've seen, um, proposed in the literature recently is that because women tend to be the default parent and the default homemaker, it Mm. makes sense that women's libidos would skyrocket in their late forties to early fifties, because what happens? The kids leave the home. And so he hasn't necessarily had as much on his plate their mm-hmm. entire marriage. And so in your thirties, when you have a four-year-old and a two-year-old who only want mommy in the middle of the night, it makes sense if he's the one getting sleep and he's the one who isn't having to think about, Oh, Johnny's homework is due. And by the way, the piano settles at Thursday at four. And, uh, mm-hmm. it makes sense that he just had more kind of mental, okay. um, uh, freedom for mm-hmm. all those years. There's that question. There's also the question of, you know, all these studies, uh, often forget to include that women are pregnant and postpartum and breastfeeding in their twenties and thirties, a lot of the time in these kinds of marriages. And so if you have that kind of hormonal swing, your whole twenties and thirties up and down and up and down and up and down, it also makes sense if for one of you, it's kind of steady that, you know, libido just is, uh, seems to always be higher. I think if we started looking at libido more as mm-hmm. we looked at it less in male um, mm-hmm. in male view, because it is a male view to assume that your libido should be the same all the time. Um, because women are such cyclical beings, um, mm-hmm. you know, even within month to month, you know, you have experiences where your libido is incredibly yeah. high. Ovulation is really high. Mm-hmm. And then it the plummets. next week it plummets. And the week after that, you want sex more, but you're really annoyed at him. So it's <laughs> like, it's just <laughs> so but I, I just think that if we were able to to stop judging women based on how we measure up to men's experience and rather look at us as, 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 you know, mm. we're, we are 
we have different experiences because of our mm-hmm. hormonal makeups, because of how our bodies work, because of our experiences. And if we started looking at that, I think that a lot of women will be able to feel a lot less broken about their sexuality where it's like, ugh, like mm-hmm. I haven't wanted sex in three months. It's like, yeah, you had a baby two months ago. Like, I don't know, maybe we give you a little bit of a break and we recognize what sexuality can look like and how maybe this is a point of time where sexuality is more about him helping you relax so that then you can enjoy sex together instead of how it was before when you could be ready in three mm-hmm. minutes. Yeah. 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 Right. Like we need to talk about this more as a cyclical experience because there, there are differences. We're not going to yeah. say there's not differences. Lots of studies have found that, but I, I do think that we also need to look at why are the differences there and not just assume it's like, Oh, well, women just don't really hit peak sexuality until their forties or fifties. It's like, well, maybe, yeah. maybe there was too much on their plate for 20 years. Right. Is there yeah. something like, like low libido linked to like stress in life? And if you're oh, yeah. raising three, four or five kids and just, yes, like I would have, I mean, just anecdotally, I know that's yes. true. I yes. mean, and mental load, mental load is huge. Women bear yes. the, women bear the majority of the mental load, well, like just having to hmm. make, having to remember when the dentist appointment is that mom's anniversary is next month. Yeah. And I have to send a card, um, that little Johnny has to go to a birthday party on Saturday and we need to buy a present and karate, the, the karate uniform's not washed. Mm-hmm. And we borrowed Ben's cleats last week and we have to return them. Like, like having to keep track of all of that stuff, mm-hmm. um, it just really wears on a woman and she bears the, the majority of it in most marriages. Yeah. And yeah. You know, you split up the mental load and suddenly her libido flourishes. And is, is it, uh, the female sexuality, and whenever I say anything like that, just on general, not not absolute, but like is is libido wrapped – well, I've heard and maybe this comes from every man's battle. I don't know, but like men can compartmentalize a little bit. So if they have like several things going on, they still have this compartment of like this libido compartment that's less – intertwined with everything else where women it does tend to be more intertwined or is that again no 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 no, that's fine that that, people have said that for a long time (laughs) Um, a lot of research is actually coming out that is a question of whether or not it's compartmentalized versus whether or not men have been told to shuttle all of their emotions into just one aspect of their being which is (laughs) so a man has a really stressful job at work but he can still have sex Whereas a woman has a really stressful day at work and she feels like and, – and she might feel like I just can't even think about that right now. But what is it in our culture? Our culture okay. has told men the only appropriate emotion that you're allowed to have is horniness, right? Horniness and anger. That's what men experience. And so if you have all these things that are going on, it's actually often a lot easier for men to then turn to sex mm-hmm. um, in mm-hmm. one way. The other way, of course, is that a lot of researchers found that for a lot of men, they actually also – find that stress and mm-hmm. busyness and all these things really does lower the libido. So there's mm-hmm. there's kind of two sides of it. And I would actually say that a lot of times the, the ability to compartmentalize a little bit more is, first of all, a privilege because the reason men are able to compartmentalize is because, frankly, if they forget something, there's someone else there to mm-hmm. figure it out. A lot of time it's their wife. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can be like, okay, like we can think about the kids later. And she's like, but then what if we forget it? I'm the last line of defense. Yeah. Um, and, and that's really what mental load comes down to is the men kind of get to live a little bit easier knowing I'm not the last line of defense. Everything will still be fine. Even if I drop the ball mm-hmm. because she knows where all the balls are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, wow. and then that's- on top of that, <laughs> you know, there, it is a little bit of a, of a, so that is true for a lot of men, but then for the men who do have a lot of stress, who do take on the mental load, who have a lot of stuff going on as well, 
it actually, they their sex drive is quite fluctuate, like does actually fluctuate as well. Um, there's a lot of studies that actually show that the more invested a dad is in the first three months of their child's life, the lower his sex drive is for those first three months. Yeah. Um. So like, actual like testosterone levels are lower. Yeah. Um. Oxytocin levels are higher. Mm-hmm. Um. So in essence, if if a dad is really is helping with the middle of the night feedings, is changing all the diapers, is taking care of his wife postpartum, doing all these things, it actually will even be easier for him to go without sex because that's how his brain. Well, that's that's. I just read the book. Um. Carol Hooven from Harvard on. It's called T. Uh, I forgot the subtitle. It's on testosterone, and mm-hmm. um, she spent her whole life studying testosterone. And she said that I remember seeing and there are several studies that shown both in animals, primates, and humans that when like testosterone levels go down when when men get married, settle down, and and they're more invested in their children, which is really unique mm-hmm. among I think primates and humans. Yeah, that's what I've seen too. Is yeah. that yeah? And 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 so that's why that's why so much like violent crime and stuff is done by typically younger single men and like fighting mm-hmm. and stuff like that competition's there but when men settle down some of that goes I was kind of disappointed I'm yeah. like no you know cuz every guy wants like no my T levels are off the chart you know and here I am with four kids and you know I'm 46 <laughs> <laughs> I'm like yeah, yeah I probably get my butt kicked in a fight right now whereas 20 years ago man I would you know um yeah. <laughs> I thought that was interesting no, I mean I it, it, again the nature nurture thing is so like you said though like it's so intertwined, you know, like our biology is not disconnected from so our social surroundings and messages we're hearing. Mm-hmm. Like it's so complex. Yeah. Um, what about the, the, the theory? I almost called it a myth, but I'll let you call it a myth if it is a myth. The whole like, you know, women, it takes a long time to sex begins in the kitchen. You know, if I really want to have sex in the night, I'm going to be doing the dishes in the morning. Hi, honey. I just took care of the dishes for you. And it's a slow cook oven or whatever the metaphor is and men it's just kind of like bam you know it can they can get aroused super quickly is that is that have you seen that to be is that true or is that more mythical or is it i like this one okay good okay (laughs) this one it is a very it's 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 a myth in the way that people often try to try to actually apply it so what this often leads to is a man says i want to have sex so i'm going to clean the house so i can get sex (laughs) Right. Mm-hmm. And what does that lead to? It leads to her being like, you know, maybe she gives him sex. Maybe he learns that when I clean, I get sex. But that doesn't necessarily actually mean that it was good for her. Mm. What we've heard from a lot of women is that it's not the doing the dishes that gets you horny. It's not like the view of a man with a mop is just, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. like, come take me. Nothing like that. What it is is that women need to know that they have a partner. They need to know they're not alone. They need to know it's not all on their shoulders. And so it's not about, I'm gonna do my chores so that I can get some nookie. It's about a lifestyle where regardless of how much sex you're having, I will be your partner. I am an adult. You don't have to take care of me. You don't have to be my mom. I'm a fully grown man. And so, yeah, I can clean up my socks and put them in the hamper (laughs) and I can do dishes and I'm not gonna make your life more difficult. And so that is really, I think mm-hmm. what often unlocks women's sexuality a little bit more where it's like, uh, it's not sexy 
to feel like you have to be a mom to the fully grown man that you married. It's just not sexy. Mm -hmm. It's really Mm -hmm. off-putting for a lot of women to walk into a room and see that it is an utter disaster and it doesn't need to be, but this is a 42-year-old man who's acting like he's still 14 years old with Mountain Dew cans all over his bedroom. Like there's, it's it's not sexy. So Mm -hmm. I I don't actually know how much it is that it turns on women's sex drive as much as it stops diminishing them. Yeah, that's... Um, Anecdotally, everything you're saying, right, that's 100% true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think what you're really getting at, though, Preston, is the difference between what Emily Nagoski called yeah. a spontaneous versus responsive libido. Yes. In that, in that some people, and especially men, but women can have it as well, have just more of a felt need for sex. Like, I like to explain okay. it how... Um, Movies and TV shows all present sex drives and libidos as if everybody is spontaneous, right? So you're together and you pant, right? You're panting and then you start to kiss and your clothes come off and you end up in bed. And that's how sex is always portrayed. Like that's the order. You pant and then you kiss and then the clothes and bed. And so that's how Mm. we think of libido, pant, kiss, clothes, bed. But what if you're at home and you're not panting? Like, does that mean that you don't want sex? And for some people, the panting comes first. For other people, the kissing and the touching come first, and then you start to pant. And that's more of a responsive libido. And more women have a responsive libido, and more men have a spontaneous libido, but there's a lot of overlap. Okay. And so to say that men are like this and women are like this isn't isn't entirely true. And women, and, and both of us can go can go up and down on this yeah. one. Yeah. But for a lot of women, and we actually we actually measured this, um, a responsive libido and a spontaneous libido can both get you to the same place. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that one person is more sexual than the other. And that's the problem is that we tend to portray the person with a spontaneous libido who just wants to right away. They're the more sexual one. Mm-hmm. But if, if, if two women, and we measured this, if two women start having sex, one is already aroused and the other one isn't aroused, but is confident that she's going to get there. They end the sexual encounter with the same positive feelings and experiences. So, you know, they, they feel close to their husbands. They feel like it was a great time. They enjoyed it, et cetera. So it's not about whether you're panting first. Mm-hmm. It's about mm-hmm. whether you're sure you're going to get there. I mean, I mean, honestly, from everything we're talking about here, like it's, it's just, it goes back to the fact that the creator seems like the creator, if there's a creator who designed us sexually, that he he designed this sexual experience to be holistic and within some kind of committed relation. Like everything we're saying is like, well, there's this factor that's related to this and stress and connection and and holistically knowing and loving the other person and being mutual and humble and serving. Like there's so many relational things that go into a good sex life that the whole idea of just one off one night stands and stuff just doesn't, it seems to go against the way the creator has designed us. Is that, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, I don't want to make so. an absolute moral art. I mean, no, I, but it, it seems to play it, play a role. I wouldn't say therefore, you know, that's why sex <laughs> no, outside of marriage is immoral. Like I think there's more to it than that, but, um, but I think that there's a good argument that, you know, sex within that committed, relationship Mm -hmm. has the ability to just be all that it's supposed to be. You know, I think a lot of people, Mm -hmm. especially who grew up in the church, they were told, you know, sex is going to be bad unless you're married. 
Right. And then they have sex and they're not married. They're like, well, that was great. Right. <laughs> Everyone lied to me. Hmm. And, and really what I think we're missing, we have such a small and narrow view of what a good sex life even Mm-hmm. But it's like as long as I orgasm, it was good. And it's like that's a really important part of it. Mm-hmm. But what about the knowing? What about that intense the the idea of this is this is a person who knows you inside and out, who mm-hmm. sees you and says, I want you, who sees you and says, You are good. I love you. Um, not just mm-hmm. I I, you know, I want you now, but mm-hmm. I want you forever. Well, one thing mm-hmm. that's I think always, that's yeah. one thing that's thrown me for a loop a little bit in the whole like women don't really need sex, whatever. Um, what about affairs? Like every, every I mean, yeah. women are having affairs. Well, I mean, every man who has an affair is with, you know, I like <laughs> why would, if a woman doesn't really need sex or whatever, um, why is she out having an affair at the same, is it same rate, similar rate, a rate? I mean, it's happening. Is, is that, is, is even that though more that. like her, her she's yeah. not emotionally connected to her husband. Some other guy is like, holistically winning her over or is it just this like I just want to have sex and I don't want to have with my husband or um I think there's likely a whole slew of it we haven't actually done research on why women have affairs that's Mm -hmm. not uh that wasn't part of our our um survey but what I will tell you is like the book his needs her needs for instance which (laughs) scored really badly on um on our rubric but that book it's it's been a bestseller for like three decades now um And his whole premise is men have five core needs and women have five core needs and they're very different. And unless you meet those needs, the other person's going to have an affair. (laughs) Or going to really want to. Um, And and this is often how this whole thing is talked about to women is you need to give him sex or he's going to have an affair. And to men – they're kind of told, well, women don't want sex anyway. And so it's all just a big mess. And if we could just get back, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, to, to how, how do we see each other, not as categories, like, mm-hmm. like she's a woman, therefore she's like this and he's a man, therefore he's like this, but instead like we're together. Let's just get to know each other. Let's figure out what, I, what each other's needs are. Let's meet each other's needs. Let's love yeah. each other. Let's let's learn how to truly communicate um, and have our relationship thrive as opposed to let's try to put ourselves in boxes, mm-hmm. which is what all of these books are trying to do is put everyone in yeah. a box. And then that just doesn't work. Right. Well, and I think that the reason we try and put them in boxes is because, frankly, the goal of these books has been quite clear. Mm-hmm. The goal is to make sure that men get enough sex mm-hmm. um, because they don't focus that much on making sure it's good for women. And even even on the books that do talk a lot about how it can be great for women, women can really enjoy sex. They still have this weird obligation message to women where you have to have sex. You don't have a choice. And so make sure that even though you don't want sex as much as your husband. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or like, when they do talk about women's orgasm, they say it's really important to enjoy sex and that you tell your husband you enjoy sex because he'll only enjoy it if you enjoy it. So then even enjoying it becomes an <laughs> obligation. Like it's like even if, even your orgasm is for his experience. Yeah, not for um, yours. And and I think that that's that's the the problem is we like, we have found our study showed our study actually proved that all these books worked because when you tell women you have to have sex if you don't have sex he'll watch porn you know by the way like men are sexual and you're not lust is every man's battle 
Guess what? They have a lot more sex. They actually do. Yeah, women have more sex. Women have more sex. They also have lower orgasm rates, higher rates of pain. So in essence, they have more terrible sex. Wow. But for the man who's orgasming the whole time, it's 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 fine sex. It's it's good sex. And so this is this is the question that I really had at the end of our big research endeavor is what is the goal of a Christian marriage? What is the goal of a healthy marriage? What should the goal of these books be? Because so far it's been making sure that he gets enough intercourse. Mm-hmm. And I would love to see the goal of our books be that both members become more and more emotionally healthy, more emotionally close, and look more and more like Christ. And I think that if they are two people who are honestly working towards those things, the frequency will sort itself out, even if it's slightly less yeah. than what it would have been. That doesn't mean it's going to go totally off. Mm-hmm. Frequency doesn't – I'm just – just my intuition would say that shouldn't be a good measure. I mean, every every humans are different. We're diverse. We have – you know, mm-hmm. it's it's almost like if you compare it to like eating, I don't want to make that analogy, but I mean like, you know, eating less food but more high quality food <laughs> mm-hmm. is typically you would feel more satisfied than eating, you know, crap every day at mm-hmm. McDonald's or whatever. Yep. Um, I, 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 I'm, we're getting over our time here, but um, I do want to – I've been wanting to ask this question. The, the role that – sexual abuse plays into this whole conversation. I mean, upwards to one third of all women, one fifth, one sixth of men mm-hmm. have experienced an unwanted sexual encounter. I have two male friends. Um, one as a teenager was wooed into a sort of like powered consensual s- sexual relationship. Yeah. He was like 13. His cousin was like 17 and for four years was engaging in not, not, like I wouldn't consider it rape in the classic sense, but it was like coaxed into an unwanted mm-hmm. that turned into a wanted, but then wasn't one. It just is complex. It's and sexual his, assault. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's still totally. sexual yeah. 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 And his it's sexual assault. Sexual assault. Yeah. And he and he's very yeah, lo- you would love my his name's Joel Willits. He's been on the show and he talks. He's a Bible scholar and he's fifty now. Been married for. 30, 30 years, 25 years or something. And he, he talks very openly about how this, this just messed him up sexually. Like mm-hmm. his view of sex is, is just like, because he loves his wife, he doesn't want to have sex with her because sex is just associated mm-hmm. with abuse and power mm-hmm. and just, and mm-hmm. another friend of mine was sexually abused as a kid and he has almost no sex drive at all, even though he would consider himself very heterosexual he just doesn't desire mm-hmm. sex. And so when he hears every man's battle, he interprets that as mm-hmm. I must not be a man because I'm not experiencing mm-hmm. these things. And it took him years to even think about how these things have been related. I can't imagine. I mean, one third, close mm-hmm. to one third of women have experienced some kind of unwanted sexual encounter. What, what role does abuse play in this whole conversation? Mm-hmm. I mean, can somebody really have healthy, loving, consensual sex with their spouse if they have undealt with abuse in the past? Oh, they totally can. Uh, Like, you can definitely have wonderful, great sex if you have undealt with abuse. But a lot of times abuse leads to issues that need to be dealt with, right? Mm -hmm. Like, we all need to go, like, working through trauma instead of just pushing it all down, instead of just denying it or or ignoring it, um, is, is just so important because you're often... Often it, it, it's it's bringing up issues that you might not even realize are there. Mm-hmm. Um, but if if sex is really a struggle because of past abuse, the answer is not to push through and have more sex. The answer is to deal right. with the trauma. The answer is to get your trauma therapy. And one of the ways that your spouse, whether you're the man or the woman in the in the relationship um, that we're talking about here, 
um, the, one of the ways that your spouse can be Christ to you is by helping you with your recovery instead of focusing on making sure that you get to the end goal of having sex again as fast as possible. Yeah. Right. Cause yeah. again, the goal is health here. The goal is to love one another as Christ loved the church. And one of the ways of doing that is to help however you need to help. Yeah. And sexual abuse is a huge issue, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um, in the church and out of it. We didn't we didn't measure that specifically in the Great Sex Rescue that much because that wasn't that we wasn't were, our main focus. But what we did find, um, which was really sad, is that a lot of these messages have virtually the same effects as abuse. And so, in a way, the church is abusing women. Yeah, beyond just the actual other ways of the sex. By the messages. By, tell- yeah. <laughs> by telling yeah. women oh, that horrible. you are that you are merely methadone, mm-hmm. that you are a body to use, that yeah. he has the right to your body, that you have no agency. Um, and the rates of marital rape that we found in a follow-up survey that we'll be talking about in another book are really very sobering. What is because- what are they? Um, within our population, I think we found something like 7%. No, it's higher than that. It's, it's, it's between 10 and 20, but, but you know, our population, there's a word that's missing from all of the evangelical books that we looked at. There's a word that I couldn't find in any of them. Mm-hmm. And that's the word consent. Hmm. It just isn't talked about in marriage. It's not an issue. And it's, and when you combine that with all of these messages about how women, your body is not your own, you're not to deprive him. We're mm-hmm. creating such a, a mentality of entitlement that sexual coercion is a real issue in a lot of marriages. And many women don't even understand that they are mm-hmm. victims of sexual assault. Like we talked to so many women mm-hmm. who, um, uh, well, we talk to women every day who say things like, yeah, I just curl up in a ball and I cry until he gets it done. And then I guess like, oh I just God. want sex to be better. And I just feel really guilty about the fact that I can't enjoy sex. And I was like, mm-hmm. you have a husband who is forcing you to have sex with him while you're in a ball crying. Mm-hmm. The problem is not your libido. Yep. Yeah. Or we had a woman who said, I have to have sex with my husband before small group every week or before we go to the beach, like the night before we take the kids to the beach, because otherwise he'll say embarrassing things about me in public or he'll be terrible to the kids. Um, that's a really common one. That's actually very common. That's yeah. common. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Having sex so that he doesn't yell or hit the kids the next day. Yeah. Yeah. Because if he doesn't get his sex, he's just too amped up. Right. Because that's. But again, these books, a lot of these books make that sound normal Mm -hmm. because you can't expect a man to treat you well. You can't because without sex, he just he can't function. Mm -hmm. And so you need you need to do your part and keep his cup full. Um, And that's why I'm saying like these messages really are abusive. Mm -hmm. And our prayer in the Great Sex Rescue is that we we ch- that we raise the bar <laughs> on on Christian marriage literature. Like we should no longer be allowed. Like a pastor should not be allowed to write a book on sex just because he's a pastor. Like you should need actual peer reviewed research, like evidence based research, or like or like have um, done. And what made me like if you write a book, it has to be backed up by research. Yeah, like that yeah. kind of thing. Um, yeah. It can't just be your own opinion. Right. And um, and hopefully, hopefully we'll start saying no to these books that are harmful and we'll put them behind us so that, yeah, they can be in the dust like I kissed dating goodbye or something. Well, a lot of them <laughs> are just anecdotal, right? You have some 
maybe some pastor who embodies a lot of things you're talking about and and he's like oh this is how all women are this is how all men are whatever without like again without cross-checking anecdotal experience with with actual data and and as you know once Mm -hmm. you start peeking behind the curtain of scientific studies you realize oh there's a complex out like you have to do a lot of research look at both sides Mm -hmm. yes don't just read one study, mm-hmm. read 10, read the 10 that critique those 10. Like it's, 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 uh, because yes. I, um, there's a quote, I, I can't remember it exactly, but some sex researcher said, you know, the, the science of sexology is among the most politicized studies that exist, you know, which means you just can't, mm-hmm. you can't just look at one study even. You have to do a lot of hardcore research, but we, I've taken you over the time. I can't think I could keep talking. Um, and I, this has been fantastic. You've given us a lot to think about. I will put links to your work in the show notes. So if anybody says, oh, I didn't write this down or where can I find more about uh, Rebecca and Sheila, um, just go to the show notes. There's going to be links in there. Um, thank you so much for the work you're doing. I hope that it continues continues to spread. Please keep writing books. You guys are awesome. Thank Thanks. you. <laughs> Take care.